in Revelation, and, and I think in the Christian life, is, is to really understand what God calls us to be and do. To, to really get our instructions right. And I think we can misunderstand instructions sometimes. And I think the book of Revelation is a great example of that. We read the book and we misunderstand what the book's about. We misunderstand the instructions. And all sorts of funny things can happen when we misunderstand instructions, right? Uh, like this cake. Uh, Dan, if you could show the cake. There we go. Uh, if you misunderstand the instructions for a cake, how to decorate a cake. This is supposed to have just balloons. Not the word just balloons, but the balloons themselves. Um, uh, the, yep, there we go. Misunderstood instructions. Um, or if you have an uh, assignment in school to spell words and so forth, um, and you're told to put these words in alphabetical order, and you don't understand that it means the words themselves, not the letters within the words. Um, yeah, well, that's, actually, that takes more work than putting the words in alphabetical order. Um, or if you have a math problem and you don't understand greater than or less than, or less than or greater than, <laughs> so it's important to get your instructions right, uh, to understand the instructions. And I would submit that when uh, we read Revelation, probably at some point in our lives, and maybe for too much of the church, we misunderstand the instructions of Revelation. We think it's about you know, some detail about who the Antichrist is, or uh, what, is, you know, what, what are those flying scorpion locust things, and you know, are they helicopters, and things like that. And that's really not what this book is about. Um, what I would submit this book is about is that we are called to follow Jesus, and in Jesus be faithful witnesses uh, in a troubled world. That's what the book is really about. How to be uh, faithful witnesses in a troubled world as we follow Jesus. And what I submit to you, I think we're going to see in chapters 10 and 11, is that truth brought out through apocalyptic literature, through these visions and so forth. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand, get the instructions correct from Him, and by His grace be changed. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the book of Revelation. We thank You for its truths. And Lord, that You are interested in us getting the core instructions right. So I pray You'd help me to teach and to proclaim Your Word. Help us to hear, uh, to understand. And I pray, Lord, it would be more than just understanding, though that is so important and so essential. But Lord, there would also be... a a change of our lives as a result. As we hear Your Word, and we would hear You Yourself addressing our lives, our hearts. And we would say, yes, Lord. And we would follow You as a result. We thank You, Lord, that this is what You're about this morning as we are before Your Word. So help us. Come Holy Spirit. Dwell with us and in us uh, to accomplish these things, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. So we're going to read chapters 10 and 11. Um, they are, go together. That's why I'm doing two chapters. Uh, it means it's a little more reading, a little more material, but I think we'll serve by hearing it all together. So here, here God's Word from Revelation. It says, uh, John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, 
and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for... 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth it consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from the heavens saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken the, Your great power and begun to reign. 
The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. God's Word from Revelation 10 and 11. Well, there's a lot there. So let's uh, dig into that. Just some reminder as we go through this. Remember from our last time in Revelation a couple weeks ago that I talked about these cycles in Revelation. There are seven cycles and, and most of them contain seven phases within those cycles or seven elements. Um, and so on our previous cycle, we saw the seals. The seals being opened. And there were seven different things that happened. If you remember, between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there was an interlude. Um, there was some material there. We talked about that in that interlude. And it said something about the people of God in that interlude. It, it actually, in that case, talked about, if you remember, the 144,000. Uh, and that number is representing a full and perfect number of God's people. So that idea uh, that, that the people of God are the perfect number. They're chosen of God. They are a full number. Um, and then in that same section, it talked about the countless number. There was a, a number of God's people worshiping and it was, a count, it was beyond counting. It was just immense. And so in that interlude, there's something being said about God's people to God's people. Because remember, this letter is written to the seven churches, uh, really representing the, the church of the day and really the whole church throughout time. Uh, and so there's something being said to them, and, and we talked about that, how uh, they were learning really through that, that their number, though they may feel a minority, they may feel small, um, they, they are part of the perfect number. God is in control and sovereign over who belongs to Him. It's a perfect number. It's a full number. And then also, it's a countless number. They may feel small and little, but in the end, after all things are accomplished, the amount of believers, the amount of those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb and who who have stayed faithful to Him, will be countless beyond number. So that was for their encouragement. It was a, a, a parenthesis really in those seals, an interlude, to talk about the people of God. Well, this cycle, the next cycle with the trumpets, is doing the same thing. The sixth trumpet has already been blown. The seventh is about to be blown. And there's something being said now about the people of God. What I would submit to you is being said here through these two chapters is that we are called uh, in Christ to be faithful witnesses. That we are called and empowered to be faithful, vibrant witnesses. We're to do that in the midst of persecution and trouble. Uh, really the theme of the entire book of Revelation. This section though is a little different. The, other, the earlier one in the seals was to reassure them. You're, you're not a minority, a, a neglected minority. You are part of the perfect number. And that number will be vast and beyond counting. In this section, it's saying, guys, you are called in the midst of this world and in the midst of the trials and persecution to stand in, in Christ to be faithful witnesses. That's the truth that I believe this teaches us. So, so let's dig in and walk through it uh, so that you can see that. I trust at the end that you'll be convinced this is what God's Word teaches. So we'll start in chapter 10, verse 1. We meet in the beginning of that chapter the, a mighty angel. And it's another mighty angel. There's mighty angels elsewhere in chapter 5 and 18 as well. 
Uh, it's another mighty angel, and he's coming down from heaven. He's wrapped in a cloud. It, it actually looks like, as this angel is described, it looks like God Himself. Because the description of this angel uh, includes descriptions used of God. He's wrapped in a cloud, and we know Jesus uh, comes on the clouds as judge. God's spoken of in Scripture as coming on the clouds, so this angel's wrapped in a cloud. He has a rainbow over his head. Where else did we see a rainbow recently in Revelation? In the throne room, chapter 4. There's a, there's a rainbow over the throne. So this angel has a rainbow over his head. Um, he's, his face is like the sun. His legs are like a pillar of fire. He speaks with a loud voice. Where did we see that? Revelation chapter 1. That's a description of Jesus. And then he stands on the land and the sea. He has one foot on the sea. One foot on the land. He's standing as sovereign over the world. So it does look like God, but it says it's another angel. So I think the best way to understand this angel is he's representing God Himself. He's an angel of God's presence representing God Himself. Uh, but he is not God. He's an angel. And he comes, and he comes to declare that there will be no more delay. There will be no more delay in the fulfillment of the mystery spoken of by the prophets. So God really through this angel is saying there will be no more delay. The things that have been spoken of, the things that have been promised, this mystery that the prophets have brought through the ages is going to be fulfilled now. It's, it's a declaration. It's with a loud voice. And then uh, the angel swears by God Himself. Just a side note by the way, it's, it's instructive. It's here for our good. Um, when He speaks, there are seven thunders that sound. Um, so there's this seven is a fullness, God's number. So there's a revelation of something powerful and important. And John's about to write it down. And through inference that he would have written it for us. That we would have known what the seven thunders said. But what happens when he's about to write it down? The voice says, don't write it down. Seal it up. Just to, I think, a side note here. Um, there's... There are things that the Lord reveals to us and there are things that are hidden. And we would be well served not to try to figure out the hidden things. Boy, what, what good advice right in the middle of Revelation for understanding and applying Revelation. So when things are clear, when we can look in the rest of Scripture and see correlations and, and we can kind of get the idea of the meaning of these visions, let's be clear. Let's say what they mean. But when they're not clear, let's not say that what they mean. Let's not say this is it. We don't know. And you'll hear me again as I preach. I'll say, I think it means this. I submit to you it means this. And other times, uh, I'm just going to say, I'm not sure what that means if I don't know what it means. But there are clear things. And, and just a side point here. Let's not let curiosity drive our interpretation of Revelation. But let us receive what's clear and work on that and trust God for the hidden things. So this, we, this never gets revealed. So maybe as you heard that, you thought, I can't wait till Paul explains the seven thunders. I'm not going to explain what the seven thunders say because I don't know what the seven thunders said. And that's intended. So, so good side points just to help us in, in Revelation. There's plenty of things that are clear that will help us uh, believe God's Word and follow Him. Um, so, he, the, the angel is declaring there'll be no more delay and uh, that the mystery of God would be fulfilled as announced by the prophets. And, and then this mystery of God... I would submit is the mystery of God's plan over time. And at the core of that plan is the good news of Christ. That Christ has come, lived as a man. God has come in the flesh. 
Uh, he's lived a righteous life. He's gone to the cross to bear the sins of His people, all those who would turn to Him in faith, to bear our sins, to pay for our sins. He rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. He's reigning now. He's brought His kingdom. He's going to bring the fullness of this. So this truth of Christ, God's plan of, of salvation, God's plan of redemption, God's plan of judgment, this, this mystery is really what He's speaking of. And that's in the prophets. That's throughout Scripture. It's there. Um, and, and that's this mystery that the, the angel is speaking of. But there are some aspects of the mystery, some aspects of the truth that, that have been kind of waiting to be revealed. And so I think he's also referring to uh, the prophet Daniel. Uh, so it's, it's throughout Scripture. You see it from Moses to Malachi in Scripture in the Old Testament, but also Daniel. So Daniel 12, chapter, 7, uh, chapter 12, verses 7 through 13. Uh, has a, an important parallel to what we are seeing here in chapter 10. So if you could project that, great. Uh, and this is what it says. Just listen and listen to some similarities. Daniel uh, is here interacting with an angel. And it says, And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offerings is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the uh, 1,335 days. But go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Do you notice some similarities there to the section? Uh, you have an angel. Uh, he's straddling the water here. He's swearing. He's raising his right hands. And he's declaring... Uh, what's going to happen in the end. But what's the difference in Daniel? He says Daniel sealed these things up until the end time. So Daniel keep this mystery concealed until the end. And now in Revelation chapter 10, the angel is saying this mystery is going to be fulfilled. Um, it's, it, there's no more delay. So what Daniel was waiting for now is being revealed. So there are parallel sections. Uh, and, we, and we learn through that. Now, could someone get me a glass of water? I forgot to get myself some water. Thank you. Um, now as we go... Great. Thanks, Josiah. Uh, as we go through there, uh, in Daniel it talks about the abomination that causes desolation. Um, and we see that Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 24. Uh, and the basic idea of this is that there's an abomination that brings destruction. There's an abomination before the Lord. There's something brought that opposes God really in the temple itself, at the very core of the place of worship. And that prophecy is given in Daniel. Thank you. Um, that prophecy is given in Daniel, uh, and it speaks of an abomination that would come soon. And then Jesus speaks of the abomination that causes desolation, speaking of the Romans coming in AD 70. Uh, and, and actually the Christians at that day understood that, applied it, and fled the city. So when they brought their false gods uh, in this vicinity of the city and then eventually into the city itself, that was it. But I also believe that this is fulfilled in the end. When the, the final Antichrist comes and sets up 
an abomination in amidst the people of God. So I think there's at least three fulfillments here. And just so you know, um, I'm not alone in that. Um, you always want to ask, okay, is this something new Paul's come up with? And if, if that's the case, you probably don't want to listen to me. Uh, but reliable, faithful Bible scholars would say the same thing. So Grant Osborne says in his commentary, uh, the abomination that causes desolation was primarily a prophecy of the terrible events of 167 to 164 B.C. when the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes caused pigs to be sacrificed in the temple and the villages of the Jews. But it was also fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem as a proleptic, that just means foreshadowing, anticipation of the last days. In Revelation, the final fulfillment refers to the terrible reign of the Antichrist as he demands that everyone worship him. So this angel is declaring this and saying there'll be no more delay. Um, and, and it's going to happen soon. So there's an aspect here uh, of this being fulfilled in the day, the days of the original hearers. And again, that would correspond with Matthew 24, right? The, the destruction of Jerusalem as the Romans come in. That it would be fulfilled soon. But it also extends beyond that. I believe it extends to the whole church age. The reality is we live amidst persecution. There are many antichrists opposing the Lord. Uh, there, there's tribulation. There's troubles. And we're called to be faithful witnesses amidst all this. And then it will culminate at the end when the final antichrist is revealed. Uh, we see that in Revelation. We see that in 2 Thessalonians and so forth. It, it's clear that there will be an end time antichrist when things are finally fulfilled. So that's what this angel is speaking about here. Uh, the fulfillment in their day and then the ultimate fulfillment as well. Um, it's good news actually. Because the, the Kingdom of God is coming with this work. The Kingdom of God comes with Christ. There's a, there's a victory. There's a Kingdom of God. The aspect of the Kingdom of God coming in their day. Uh, there's a transition going on. And I'll talk about that as we go through. It's good news. It's good news for the hearers at the time. That there's, there'll be no more delay. That God is fulfilling these things. Um, it's, it makes me think actually of, of the sort of good news um, you hear when you're waiting for your flight uh, in an airport. Has, uh, if you've ever been waiting for a flight, I imagine if you've flown a lot, you've had delayed flights. Uh, they can be delayed hours, sometimes a day. Uh, any, anyone here ever had a flight delayed a day where you're actually waiting? Yeah, a lot of us. I've had that too. Um, and you know when you're there, you're waiting for something to happen, and you're kind of, uh, every time the flight attendant moves towards the microphone, you know, you're, you're oh, is it going to come? Is it, is it going to be boarded? And as soon as they get up and say, you know, uh, the plane's here or whatever, and, and now you can board, everybody starts getting their stuff, and you're all ready to go. Uh, it's time to board the plane. That's what the angel is saying, basically. He's saying it's time to board the plane. That, that there's an announcement that these things that we've waited for have come. They're here now. Uh, he's making an announcement on God's behalf that the, that the plane is there for boarding um, and it's time to, to get on. Now to understand, again, in Revelation, it, there's an aspect that's immediately applied. There's an aspect that's applied at the end as well and then in, in the meantime. So to use our metaphor, it's time to board the plane, he's saying to the original audience. Get on the plane. The kingdom of God has come. And there's a transition really in the destruction of Jerusalem as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24. As we see it in Revelation, there's a transition from God dealing with the kingdom of Israel, dealing with His people through the kingdom of Israel, to God dealing with His people as the kingdom of God as the church. 
in the church age. And that transition started, of course, when Christ came, uh, when He died and when He rose again. But His kind of punctuation at the end of dealing with the kingdom of Israel as such was in the destruction of Jerusalem as predicted. So there's an aspect of the angel saying that the fulfillment of all the things that have been said about the kingdom of God is coming. It's coming now. Get on the plane. The plane's taking off. We live in the age where the plane is in the air, basically. Uh, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is now spreading. It's going to all nations. It's including all peoples. As we hear the good news of Christ, as the Spirit of God applies these truths to our hearts, we are born again. We're made sons and daughters. We're part of what, of what God's doing building the kingdom of God. And that's going to all nations throughout the whole world. And the kingdom continues to build and grow. It touches all peoples. Uh, it, it will continue till the very end after all peoples have heard, after there are believers among all tribes and nations. And I would believe Romans chapter really 9-11 through 11 teach us that there will be a final revival among ethnic Israel as well. So God's not done with Israel, but He's done with Israel as a kingdom unto itself. And now it's the kingdom of God, and he's, gonna, he's reaching Jews and Gentiles now, but there'll be, it looks like, a final end time revival as well. Then the end comes. Then the plane lands. And that's the fulfillment of all these things. I, I hope that helps you. Um, it's a lot of information, I know. I'm looking at a lot of faces like, oh, okay, taking it in. Hmm, let me think about that. Um, just to give you a little bit of application, though, and an illustration as well, um, what do we do in light of this? You know, how do we understand? How do we apply this? Like, we're not part of that original audience, so how does it apply to us? And given I think that metaphor helps you. But it's interesting to note that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus' disciples are expecting the fullness of the kingdom. They're expecting the plane to have taken off, flown, and land at that point. They're saying, you know, you've, you've died, you've rose again, you're here. So let's finish it. And so they ask him in, in that chapter, um, he said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And listen to what Jesus says to them. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, what do you do? What's the application? Well, God's going to fulfill this. There'll be a time when, when, the, when Christ returns. There'll be a time of final tribulation, a time of revival, and so forth. We don't know when that's going to happen, but your job is basically to do the work of witnessing. Just in line with Revelation, isn't it? To be faithful witnesses. To live in this world, this troubled world. To live in the truth of the Gospel. To testify to that truth. So, the application is uh, to walk in the power of the Spirit that is ours as believers and be faithful witnesses. Well, let's keep on moving through. As we move on from chapter 10 in the beginning, we see John's commission. He's commissioned by this angel on behalf of God to prophesy to, to many peoples. There's this scroll that the angel has. He has this scroll in his hand. And I think the best way to understand that scroll is it's connected, if not the same, as the scroll earlier in Revelation. And it represents the plans of God. The plans of God for salvation, for rewarding His people, and bringing judgment on evil and really making all things right. That's what it represents. And so John's commissioned to, to take that scroll and to eat it and to prophesy. So if, if you are, have your Bible open, um, turn to chapter 10 and uh, verse 8 and following, and you'll see uh, actually in verse 10, it says that he ate the scroll 
And this is actually very parallel to what Ezekiel does, so you can check this out in Ezekiel as well. He eats the scroll, and uh, it's sweet as honey in his mouth, and then it's bitter in his stomach. So it makes his, him sick. So it tastes good, it's sweet, it's pleasing in his mouth, but then it's bitter in his stomach. Um, I'll touch on that a little more uh, shortly. Uh, so that's what happens. And then he's told to go and, and to measure the temple. So he, he takes a rod and he measures the temple. Again, that's very parallel to Ezekiel. Um, he measures the temple. Now this is a vision of the temple. It's not the actual temple. Remember, this is all a vision. Uh, he measures the temple. He measures the inner courts and he's told to uh, exclude the outer courts. That they'll be trampled on um, for three and a half years. So that's the time, times, and, and the half a time. That three and a half year time period is elsewhere in Scripture. Again, we always want to look at cross-references. So in Daniel 7 and 9 and 12, we see it mentioned. There's this, this time period of three and a half years. And it represents a time of, of trouble, of tribulation. It represents a time where God's people are present and dealing with trouble and tribulation. Uh, it's related to the abomination that causes desolation. And it also is related to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, from what we can tell. Uh, in AD 70, that abomination that causes desolation came. There was a siege of Jerusalem itself for pretty much three and a half years. Uh, the siege itself was three and a half years. There was tremendous tribulation with that. Uh, and so he's speaking of this. And so the temple's measured, and the outer part of the temple is excluded, and it gets trampled on for three and a half years. Actually, uh, it says in Luke, Jesus says that that's trampled on for the time of the Gentiles, so to the end of the, when the plane lands, basically. This is what's going to happen. Uh, and so it's a picture, though. It's representing something. It's representing that God is, is sequestering His people. That inner court represents Him measuring off. This is how it functions elsewhere in Scripture. He measures off those who are His. These are mine. And I'm going to keep them. They're going to be protected spiritually. Now, they'll go through physical suffering, but spiritually they're going to be safe in me. And then I'm going to cast out the rest. Uh, so He's going to bring, allow judgment, uh, bring judgment on the rest. That's the picture here. So, he's, so John's prophesying this truth. That's consistent with the message we're seeing through Revelation as well. God's salvation for His people and His judgment on evil. And all those who don't run to Jesus are left to stand before a holy God on their own. Um, so uh, it's, it's a picture of AD 70. It's a picture of the final time. And it's really a picture of what we live in as well. It represents what it is to be a believer. And in many ways, we live in this three and a half year time period. We live as faithful witnesses amidst trouble, amidst uh, tribulation in this world. And, and though we know a good deal of peace here in the United States for much of the world, and probably most of the world really, uh, they live amidst persecution. They live amidst this in a very real way. So, so that's the message that we're hearing in, in chapter 11. It, it continues, just to keep on going, it talks about these two witnesses. Do you see it there? Um, it speaks about the two witnesses. I will grant authority in verse 3 of chapter 11, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth. Um, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, there's been a lot of speculation about what those two witnesses are. Some say they're Moses and Elijah. Um, that historically, Moses and Elijah were witnesses. Um, some say that they are... James, the brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church, and Peter, 
Some say they're going to be the Zen time witnesses, um, undisclosed, uh, and that's what they'll be. I don't think it's any of those. Um, I think as we look in Scripture, we can see, get a better sense. And this idea of the two olive trees and the two witnesses is not original to Revelation chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 4 speaks about it. Again, always looking at other Scriptures for these things to understand. So let me read that to you. Um, It says in chapter 4 of Zechariah, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was wakened out of a sleep. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Uh, Verse 11 of chapter 4. And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are besides the two golden pipes in which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Wow. Almost the same phrase in Zechariah 4. If we look in Zechariah and we read through, there are are two individuals featured prominently as anointed ones in Zechariah. One is the high priest, Joshua. The other is the king, Zerubbabel. So I think it's proper to understand in Zechariah the two witnesses are the priest, Joshua, and the king, Zerubbabel. Now let's go to Revelation. Where have we heard king and priest mentioned already? What has Jesus done by His blood? Purchase people for God to be kings and priests. The kingdom of priests. So I think the best way to understand these two witnesses is that they represent you. They represent the people of God. They represent the people of God who are in Jesus kings and priests. It's who we are. So the early church, as they heard this originally, uh, should have understood it as speaking of them. For us as well. These two witnesses represent the people of God. I think that's the best way to, to understand it. They, they are a picture of that. Um, a picture of us and an encouragement to us. And it's really amazing to then to read it and look at what these two witnesses do. Right? They do some pretty wild stuff. Uh, fire pours out of their mouths and consumes their foes. Imagine if you could do that. Kind of, you know, you're talking to somebody and they don't agree with you and fire comes out of your mouth and consumes them. Sorry, got it wrong. Um, that's, these witnesses get to do that. Uh, they, they bring drought at a word. They can just speak and boom, there's a drought. Uh, they can turn water to blood. Well, that would be something to, to fascinate people with. I go down to the Merrimack and turn it all into blood. They bring plagues as often as they desire. Well, what is this, what is this imagery doing? Is it meaning that you actually get to do these things or that there will be some witnesses who will kind of walk, out, walk down the street and be like torching people? Or is it a picture in God's Word of, of truths? It's pointing, I think, uh, from Moses as a witness and what he did in his day and the authority that he brought. But it's speaking of basically your power as a witness. Your ability to demonstrate the Kingdom of God. The truths of the Kingdom of God. Your authority. Your influence. And the church has an authority. It has a power to witness. And God does confirm His truth with power. Uh, through the miraculous, through regeneration, through all these things. And so the church walks in, in power like this. and just It's a prophetic, apocalyptic image of the power of the witness of the church. Well, it's important to see what happens to the two witnesses when they're done testifying during these three and a half years, when they've done their job of testifying, 
God has sovereignly protected them and empowered them, and now God sovereignly allows them to be killed. They are killed by a beast from the pit. This beast we're going to see later, he rarely represents demonically inspired world governments and authorities. He kills them, and they lie dead on the streets of what is called the great city. This great city is also called Sodom and Egypt, representing uh, cities that were in rebellion against God, cultures that were in rebellion against God. And then it says also the place where Christ was crucified. What city is that? Jerusalem. Now again, it's representative. It's speaking of Jerusalem and its fallenness. Not the new Jerusalem. Uh, not necessarily simply the ge- geographical Jerusalem, but, but fallen Jerusalem. And so these witnesses are killed there. And there's, uh, there's a response. First, there's a response of a great celebration. Everybody's really happy that they're dead. Because it says that their witnessing tormented them. They didn't like to hear what they had to say. And it tormented them. There's a reality, isn't there, when we speak the Word of God um, to those who are being drawn, those who are realizing their need, it's, it smells good. It's a sweet smell that comes with it. It's a blessing. Oh, I like this. I want to hear more. But to those who are opposed, who are rebelling, it's a stench. It's offensive. It's unpleasant. And that's what's going on with these witnesses. There's a power and authority they're speaking in, and people don't like it. And, and when they're dead, they're gone like, whoo, done with that. No more of that, that sort of stuff. I don't have to deal with that. There's a celebration. But there's more than that. They are, they are raised to life. Life comes into them. They lay, they lay dead for three and a half days. Life comes into them, and then they ascend and go to be with the Lord. And that would speak of the fact that we belong to the Lord. And though we may die, we, we belong to Him. We're going to be with Him. And with that ascension, the people are uh, in great fear. There's an earthquake. A tenth of the city falls. And 7,000 people are killed. So again, 7,000 representing the, a full number and, and a complete number of people that are killed. It's interesting as we read that though, there's something to note. I don't know if you remember from last time in chapter 9. When this all happens... Uh, so in chapter 11, verse 13, you can find it. Um, It says, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified. And then it says, and gave glory to the God of heaven. You see that? In chapter 9, when terrible, these cataclysmic things happened, what was the response? Do you remember? They didn't repent. That's right. Even though all these things happened, they didn't repent. Uh, which just doesn't make sense. Like, why would they not repent? Couldn't they see their need for the Lord? Couldn't they call out? So that's supposed to stand out to us and make us realize, wow, this is, this is terrible and, and I don't want to be like that. I want to repent. Well, here they give glory to God. The witnessing of the church seems to have an effect that now, when these things come, they give glory to God. And that phrase, giving glory to God, is connotes either that they come to trust in Christ and our believers belong to Him, give glory to God. That's how it's used in Scripture. But it's also used when, when people are, become God-fearers. They may not be believers. They may not belong to the Lord. But they're changed in their disposition. Their orientation now is, I believe there's a God. And there's a respect there. By the way, um, when a church is healthy, it will attract God-fearers and produce God-fearers. And I'm glad by God's grace, this is a church where there are God-fearers. There are people who come and are part of us and they're, they're not members, but they are part of our friendship here. 
And they're God-fearers. They're not yet at the place where they have come to understand or ready to put their faith in Christ. But there's a reverence. And that's part of why they're here. They're not here just because we're nice people. I think we're relatively nice people. Um, but they're here because, because of that. And so I'm grateful for that. And that's just side note. Um, and God uses that and draws them to Himself. So that's what's going on here as a result of, of the witnessing. Um, and just remember the whole theme backing up to John's prophesying of the bitter and the sweet. The bitter and the sweet. When He's going to declare this truth, there's bitterness, there's sweetness. Guys, to be a believer is to be, a, be called to be a faithful witness. To speak the truths of God. To speak about who God is. To speak about His amazing love and mercy. To talk about the fact that He's made all things. He's created all things. He creates beautiful snow-covered days to remind us of His goodness. His holiness. To, to just to enjoy. He's, he's, he's good. He's a Creator. He's faithful. He's kind. Uh, he's merciful to us in Christ. He loves us so much that He's given His only Son that we wouldn't perish. Though All those things are sweet things, are they not? And Especially when someone says, yes, I believe. And you watch them come to the place where they believe and they're forgiven. And, and you know that they're safe in the Lord. And you know that they're going to just experience growth and become more like Christ. There's nothing sweeter than to be part of that. Is, is there not? It's wonderful. But then there's the bitter side. Isn't there? Because when you tell people about that, you do it because you love them, because you know God loves them, you want them to know that, but, but people say no. Close friend, a close relative said, um, when the good news was shared, she said, uh, I hope I've never done anything that Christ had to die for. She just didn't understand at all, and it was hard to hear that. It was bitter. I trust maybe somehow she's come to know the Lord, but uh, there's a side to it that's, that's bitter. It's, it's difficult. It's both those together. To be a faithful witness is to experience sweet and bitter. And to be that in our lives, to represent the sweetness, but also to, to, to be somebody who at times, though reluctantly, brings things that are bitter. That aren't things that people enjoy. That's just the nature of being a witness to truth. It's going to be sweet to some and bitter to others. I, I think of actually my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Fletcher. Great example of this. Not in terms of the Gospel, just in terms of other things. Um, she was probably one of my favorite teachers. Um, and she was gentle. She was kind. She loved the students. She was actually an excellent teacher as well. Made everything interesting. I have lots of mem wonderful memories of that year. I really thrived that year. Um, those of you who know me, there were other years where I didn't thrive. Um, my own fault. But anyhow, Mrs. Fletcher was wonderful. But she also was no pushover. Mrs. Fletcher was no pushover. She was all those things, but she also had certain rules. And those rules were clear. And if you broke the rules, there were consequences. So, when I was caught flying paper airplanes out of the third story boys' bathroom, um, she didn't excuse it. I got in trouble, and I think I had bathroom cleanup duty for a month after that. And... When Eddie Mills kept goofing off in play practice after multiple warnings, she gave the leading role to his understudy for the play. Yours truly. That was my moment in the spotlight as Pinocchio. Um, and I hope there's no pictures around. Uh, but Mrs. Fletcher really uh, had both these things. The, the, the kindness, the sweetness, and standing for truth. She repre 
represented both those things. And really, we as God's people are called to the same. We are called to, to experience sweetness and, and show sweetness, but also experience bitterness and have people see us as, as in a bitterness way. Not that we're trying to be obnoxious, but we're standing for truth. And it's offensive. That's what it means to be a witness. That's what it means to be a faithful witness. That's what I think the Lord is getting at in this section of Revelation. So, let me just ask you, how do you compare to Mrs. Fletcher in terms of Gospel truths? When people interact with you, certainly believers, but also people who don't yet know the Lord, is there a sweetness? Do you convey the love of God? Do they know that you love them and respect them? Do you convey the joy of knowing God? Do you enjoy who they are and their gifts and, and aspects of God's goodness in creation with them? Is there a sweetness there? And I think there is, but just something to think through. Do I represent that? But also, on the other side, do you, is there a bitterness attached to that? And in that, do you stand for truth? Do you find that some of the people that you do love and respect the most and love and respect you? Get offended by things you say. And I'm not talking about your politics or your personal opinions. I'm talking about when you tell them about Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Do you experience that? That's what it is to be a faithful witness. I would submit that if we're not experiencing both those things, we're not really being faithful witnesses. People need to see the sweetness. It needs to be sweet to us when they receive that. Then there's a bitterness. Really, the bitterness is John experiencing it. It's us realizing, oh boy, I so want them to believe in Jesus, but they really told me they never want to hear me say that again. That's part of being His witnesses. And yet we're called, and yet there'll be those who will glorify God in response. Well, if the band could come up. Sorry, I'm taking a little long this morning. A lot of material. The final part, uh, chapter 11, verses 15-19. through 19. We are commissioned for the very end. This is, a, again, another celebration of God's final salvation, His judgment. Um, and it's a picture, we see it elsewhere, repeated through all these cycles. There are pictures of the end goal, of the end result of this salvation that comes. And this salvation that comes, it's glorious. It's a celebration. There's a, a rewarding of the saints, but there's also a judging of those who have not come to Jesus. There is... It's really, really good news or it's really, really bad news here. It really depends on what team you're on. Whether you've run to Jesus and you've depended on Him and are learning to be a faithful witness or if you have not, if you've stood on your own. Kind of like a few weekends ago, what team you were on, what team you were cheering for. Very different experiences, weren't they? If you're a Patriots fan, it was a time of disappointment, regret, sorrow. But if you're an Eagles fan... Uh, it was euphoria and elation and uh, some crazy celebration too. They had waited about a lifetime to finally have a championship. The difference was whose team you were on. In Revelation, there's a call here to be on the right team. To be with Jesus. He receives all who would run to Him. And we ought to run to Him every day to trust in Him for His grace. Trust in Him for His power. To live in Him and to learn to be faithful witnesses. And so, there's a truth and application for all of us here. Run to Jesus. If you've never run to Jesus, run to Him today. Trust in Him. Find in Him forgiveness. Find in Him life and power to live as His faithful witness. 
If you've come to believe and uh, talk to me, I'd love to hear about that and love to see you get baptized as a way to celebrate and signify that important change. If you have come to Jesus and you have been baptized, then keep on coming to Jesus and learn to be His faithful witness. Depend on Him that you might stand and, and witness to the world that they might hear about Christ no matter what it might bring. We are commissioned by Jesus to be faithful witnesses. And Before we transition, let me just encourage you to take a minute right now and pray. Say, Lord, how can I respond to Your Word? Maybe that comparison to Mrs. Fletcher would be helpful. Am I trusting in Jesus to reflect those qualities? Where am I deficient? Where can I grow? How can I ask Him for, for help? Let's do that and then we'll transition to communion.